Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solis, and with me, as always, is my very, very talented friend who always finished her summer reading assignments, the mixtress DC Gina. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, good morning or good afternoon or evening. I'm not really sure what time of day it is anymore. We're here at last call. There you go. So and that's we're, all that we're sunlight, right? It, yeah, it doesn't matter what time it is. It's like Vegas in DC. Exactly. It's just happy hour time. <laughs> yes. There you go. So, uh, Gina, I have to admit, I never read War and Peace through and through. Did you? So it was required reading. I cheated. Yeah. I did like, you know, the cliff, notes. cliff notes. I never, and, and I in. And then to make up for it, I watched the movie later on. But I've oh, never read the book through and through, I have to admit. But, um, you know, generally it's regarded as a masterwork of Russian literature and is considered one of the world's greatest novels ever. Um, this literary work of art was written by Russian author Leo Tostoy and was published in its entirety because apparently when it was first released, it was a series. In its entirety, it was released in 1869 and is considered one of his finest works uh, or literary achievements. But beyond just being one of the greatest authors of all time, good old Leo has a lot to talk about, or had a lot to talk about, I, guess you, I should say. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature every year from 1902 to 1906, and the Nobel Peace Prize in 1901, 02, and 09, but was never awarded the prize. Of course not. Of course not, kind of crazy. And if that wasn't enough, that wasn't enough. Do you know he had something in common with Henry Ford, Martha Stewart, Morgan Freeman, and even the famous fictional character, Sherlock Holmes? Do you he know why? was a uh, criminal? <laughs> <laughs> now, come on, Morgan Freeman? No, they were all- I don't know, I, he played a criminal once. I'm sure he did, no, I'm he sure did, he did. Right? Yeah, oh, he did. Yeah, yeah Green yeah, Mile. Yeah, absolutely did. Um, so they apparently all share the love for the humble bee and were uh, dedicated beekeepers. Oh. Imagine that. Well, I love that. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's good company, I think. That's buzzingly great news. Oh, good Lord. Oh, you know, I live on a farm. I couldn't help it. Dad jokes are plentiful when oh, you live on a farm. Oh, good Lord. That was more bitter than sweet. So, uh-huh, get that, honey? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, this all leads me to today's designated drinker because he also has a great appreciation for those yellow and black pollinators. He is Virginia State Virginia State's apiarist Keith Tignor. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great, great. So Gina's got tons of questions for you and she's just like can't wait to throw them out there. But let me start, please. Please tell us what does that mean to be Virginia's apiarist? Well, uh, the definition that I give to most people is I'm the beekeeper's keeper. Um, I'm the, <laughs> the regulatory person or the head of the regulatory uh, program for uh, maintaining healthy bees in Virginia, uh, making sure that um, uh, as far as a bee population is concerned, what uh, is out there is, is healthy, productive, and, and doing what it's supposed to do. That's awesome. So how did all this start for you? Why entomology? Uh, I've always had an interest in science. Um, it it kind of took hold in middle school and just uh, kept growing throughout high school and college. And last year in college, I um, took a class in entomology and it just kind of bit. And I went on for uh, graduate study at Virginia Tech from uh, in entomology. And it's kept going. That's amazing. That's amazing. Can you imagine? How does the state hire you to do that? Like, I want to know, like, how do you like... 
Like, I understand, like, how I get to, like, my level. Like, I go to the store. <laughs> I buy a hive. I call the state and I say, state, what bees am I allowed to have? But how do you become that person is what I want to know. I, I apply for the job. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a job listing? Do they have, like, state bartender? Because that's what I want to be. <laughs> yeah. I want to be a bartender at the state level. <laughs> well, the, um, it, the state recognizes, and, and many states do, as well as the nation, uh, recognizes that honeybees in particular are very important pollinators uh, as, as far as their... Um, being able to go out and help plants reproduce, um, but the other side of it is the is the name itself, honey. Everybody recognizes honey. Everybody enjoys honey. Um, so we want to make sure that our honeybees, in particular, because we use those for agriculture uh, pollination of many of our crops. There's probably over 80 different crops in Virginia that we that are pollinated by honeybees. Wow. We want to make sure they're they're healthy, um, and so in order to do that, the state implemented a, a uh, the the state uh, the apris or apiculture program um, that provides uh, for helping beekeepers to maintain healthy bees. All right, can, we, um, can I break this down? It's all you, system. Okay, so let's let's break this down. You, <clears throat> we're going to take me. I just bought a farm last year. And we're definitely looking into getting bees. What bees are, I, I mean, I'm, I, so all I hear about is Italian honeybees, right? Everyone's like, oh, get Italian honeybees. But there's got to be an American bee, right? I mean, bees don't all migrate from Italy, you know, and they're like, hey, I'm here. I like pasta and honey. I mean, like, you know, give, tell give me, me some about lemoncello. the bees. <laughs> what should we be saving? What should we be doing? If you live in the Northeast, what are we doing? Well, it, as far as honeybees are concerned, um, it, several million years ago, there was a honeybee in North America, but it went extinct. Um, we've got a fossilized um, honeybee in, in amber that, that uh, we, can, we can date it back, but it was only wow. recently found. Um, in 1622, um, ships from England coming into uh, City Point, Virginia, Jamestown uh, settlement, um, brought uh, hives over. And that was the introduction, as far as we're concerned, um, it was the introduction of honeybees to North America. Um, it went from there, spread throughout the colonies, throughout the uh, United States um, eventually. And so now they're worldwide. Um, there are several species of honeybees. Um, most of those are of Asian descent. Um, the one that we have here in North America um, comes from uh, Europe and North Africa, uh, Ciapis mellifera. And the, what you refer to as the Italian honeybee is a subspecies of that um, species. So is it true um, that the markings on all these, these, these so, a, so a honeybee, they have different markings, right? Like you could tell the different species by their back, not just the stripes. Is that right? Or, am I, or is that another lie that people have told me? They just need to know. <laughs> well, there's, a, the, there's the abdomen. I think you're talking about the stripes that's on the abdomen and the, there's the yeah. uh, ventral dorsal top and the bottom. Um, yeah. And they do have stripes. Many of our uh, hymenoptera, which are, are their honeybees and hornets and wasps, other bees, um, have, have some markings on the abdomen, some uh, yellowish or brown or, or a different coloration. Honeybees have the stripes. Um, depending on the species, depending on the subspecies, those stripes um, can vary. Um, but 
in, in identifying the various bees that we have, we go much more in depth. We look at the, um, the length of their wing. We look at the um, uh, size of, of, their, of their tarsa, their feet, um, how long their femurs are, uh, different morphological um, characteristics. We look at the genetics of it. Um, so there's a lot more that goes into it, but typically we, uh, as far as the subspecies, the Italian, uh, Carniola, the Cossicans, the uh, German honeybees that we use as subspecies of the Apis mellifera, the honeybee that we have here in the United States. That's, um, we, we look at, at their behavior, we look at their, at the coloration, as you indicated. So what is, so, you know, you have a novice beekeeper, somebody that's just thinking about doing it, like, what would you suggest? Would you suggest that you go for, like, what, what's a nice introductory, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm saying, what's a good introductory bee to beekeeping? Because I feel like, you know, when you start a farm, right, a chicken's easy, you know, not easy, but you have to like take care of chickens and they're kind of like self-sufficient for most of the day. But then if you get like a goat, you know, they're going to get into something, right? Mm -hmm. Like a chicken's not going to be, you know, trying to run in the middle of the road. Goats, they're leaving. Talk about the bees. Like what, what's a good introductory bee? What's a bee that's beautiful, but you really need to be more advanced? Well, I use the example of my dogs. Um, when I first got married, we had my wife brought into the, into the family a, um, uh, a, a, a poodle, a uh, purebred poodle, AKC registered, um, great dog, um, but had problems, um, physical problems and so forth. And as she got older, they became more of a problem. We now have a rescue dog, which is a mud, a, a mixture of breeds. Um, we see a lot less problems with that and, and seems to be a little, um, well, stolen our hearts, <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah. Um, so I, I use that as an example to our beekeepers to say, the best bee that's out there is a mutt. Um, you know, you can get a pure, or, or it's hard to get a pure line of bee. Uh, we can do some selection and, and trying to get specific characteristics and so forth. Um, but we find that, that uh, those that are locally raised, um, those that are available uh, readily um, to our beekeepers, those mutts that, that, that have different genetic characteristics, different um, input of, of all their uh, different behaviors and so forth, they seem to work the best, um, and, and I think people enjoy those the, the most. There's a restaurant in Sweden. It's called Noma. It's like the best restaurant in the world. And they just pulled out this honeycombs. And like, I, I want to ask this question because it's, it's fresh in my head. He pulled out the honeycombs that he was going to use for um, a dinner that they were doing. And instead of them being like hexagons, like, or right, they're hexagons here on your combs, they were very, very long, like very, very long and side by side, like really long. I would say like an inch and a half long comb and stacked. It almost looked like uh, corn, but long. What, what is it? Is that a different kind of bee or is that hive in the ground or what is that? Well, the, the, the honeycomb of the honeybee um, or the comb of the honeybee, um, other insects uh, like um, the, the hornets and wasps, they create comb as well. Theirs is created from paper. So they'll go out and they'll um, chew on, on leaves, they'll chew on the bark of a tree, so forth, macerate it and make it into their, into their comb, but it's made out of paper. Honeybees um, excrete a wax from uh, glands in their abdomen, and they'll manipulate that with their, hand, their, their feet and their, their, um, <laughs> their mouth to make the comb. So each strain of bee makes a little bit different size comb 
what they're making is they're making a cell, uh, basically a, a, a room to raise their young in, to store their pollen, to store the food. So that basically, they're, if you think of the kitchen and the bedroom, it's all kind of combined into that one cell um, that makes up multiple cells, make up the honeycomb. Um, different strains of, of bees, different subspecies of bee, honeybees um, have different size, but they're pretty close uh, as far as that size. Um, typically, when they're drawing it out, it's, um, uh, the, the cells are kind of offset. So they're not in a straight line on top of each other. It helps to give more uh, strength to the comb. It helps to give more uh, stability uh, when they're mm. filling it full of honey, uh, a pretty good weight to keep it from falling apart. That is so cool. So they're like little architects too. What? Yes. The makeup yeah, they, yeah. That, I, so, I, all right, here's my next question. I always assumed, and this is wrong, that natural bees make hives and they're round and they're in trees. Just recently, we found a beehive, not a yellow jacket or hornets or anything, in the ground. Is that normal? For yellow jacket, yes. Uh, not for but the what honeybee. What about honeybees? Honeybees, um, a, a normal nest for a honeybee is located in a, in a cavity. They're cavity dwellers. Um, so what they're going to be looking for in, in the forest is a hollowed out tree to build it in. Um, they want to be off the ground. So typically it's going to be anywhere from 8 to 15 feet up in the air. Um, that gives them the advantage of being away from predators. Um, it also gives them a, an advantage of being away from the, from the, the ground itself, which can be very moist and, and uh, cause problems as far, with that moisture. Hmm. So you're sure it's bees then? I don't know now. My dog found it. I'm probably something else. It sounds like you might have a yellow jacket or a hornet um, that's in the in the ground. Well, I found out that um, this year of buying this house that was built in 1767, that literally came over from with the original honeybees. Apparently, <laughs> um, I have this these things called carpenter bees, mm. and yes, right. So that's crazy. Yeah, we uh, actually when uh, Keith and I first chatted that I had the exact same question because we have a cart we have a couple carpenter bees and they're basically making Swiss cheese of my deck yeah but they're also pollinators so yeah what do you do I don't want to kill them what do you do well it, normally they're going to be chewing on dead wood uh, in the forest so down trees trees that have that have died standing up so forth but uh, and, and, and chewing through to make a, a nest so they're they're making tunnels um, and and laying eggs in there and raising their young and so forth. But unfortunately, when we look, think of our house, we think of that as a, as a structure that we live in and we, you know, have um, fond memories of and want to maintain and so forth, but it's actually got a lot of dead wood in it. And so that's going to be attractive to the carpenter bees um, to utilize that. So if they get into there, of course, they can, they can cause some structural damage and, and you want to address that. Um, if you can discourage them from, from building a nest, from continuing to come back year after year, that's best. Um, but sometimes you can't do that. And so um, it's kind of a trade-off as, as Louise was saying, you know, they are beneficial in the, in the fact that they do some pollination for us. Um, but if they're doing structural damage to our homes, we're kind of concerned about that. And of course, we want to prevent that from happening. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's just a matter of if you've got bare wood painting over it, that tends to discourage them. Oh. That, that's what the exterminator said, because I he came out and my husband was like, yeah, kill them. I'm like, no, don't kill them. 
we're going to, we'll do whatever else. He's like, well, you can paint it. So we painted it. And he's like, and my, I'm, I'm very frustrating to my husband because we, we are very opposite. He's like, hunt it, kill it. It's over. And I'm like, no, no, no. We can save it, move it, put it back where it needs to go. And it's, um, you know, yep. it's a struggle. Right? So on that note, that's a really good thing that you bring up, Gina. I wanted to talk to um, Keith about the health of our bee population. We've all heard not so good things in the news, I'm sure. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? And then what is it that we can do as individuals, to Gina's point, not kill the hive? What can we do to... Um, Help the bee cause. Well, for the for the honeybees, that was something that occurred back in the uh, 1980s, 1990s. We had a number of uh, invasive species coming in that that were detrimental to the bees, uh, specifically to mites um, that feed on the bees or feed on their offspring, and and transmit de- or, uh, diseases that can cause problems for them. Uh, we've had other things come into the United States since then. Uh, uh, other insect species that are that are detrimental to them a small high beetle um, diseases and so forth that have been spread around and and, and we're for, United States is not alone in that we're seeing in Europe we're seeing in other other continents as well the result is that we're losing in Virginia we're losing roughly a third of our hives every winter um, and sometimes even more than that because we have summer losses as well and and it's hard to maintain that population uh, when you're losing a, a third of, of your workers, a third of your production. Um, you know, to put it in perspective, how many businesses would stay in business if you lost a third of your product every year, a third of your of your workforce? We just saw that, the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, well, yeah, we're seeing that and, and we're seeing businesses close as a result. Um, the, the things that we are uh, encouraging beekeepers to do is to address those um, the, those mites that are a problem, particularly the varroa mite, um, but the other other uh, uh, c- concerns that we have. Um, one of those is is a change in habitat. Uh, we're seeing a lot of growth of uh, people, um, so we're losing with that infrastructure that's going in to support people, the houses, the roads, the power lines, the shopping malls, and so forth, that's taking food, that's taking harborage um, away from air pollinators. Um, honeybees were our first sign of that. Um, they they really are our only managed pollinators that we have. We have others that we kind of semi-manage, but with the honeybee, we're in there every day or can be in there every day making sure that they're doing what they should be doing, which is going out collecting pollen, collecting nectar um, for themselves, but also for our benefit, for that seed production of, of not just agricultural crops, but uh, our, our forest and our, our wetlands, those plants that are in there. Um, so, you know, loss of habitat, um, we're seeing uh, increased use of pesticides, there's a, a whole list of things that are impacting our honeybees. And because they're, they're managed, we were able to document that occurring in our honeybee population. Since that time, we've looked at other pollinators as well, our bumblebee populations, or butterfly populations, and so forth, and we're seeing the same things occurring there, a decline in the populations, uh, hard to maintain those, those species. Um, we're seeing some go on the endangered species list, some um, getting close to it. A rusty patch bumblebee is one that was just put on the endangered species list. You know, people know about the monarch uh, butterfly, uh, the concerns we have for that. So those are just two of many um, that, we've, that we've listed as having concerns about. 
what we can do, of course, is to provide more harborage, more more food for them. Um, and for the you know a typical homeowner, that that may be just a matter of of putting out uh, a, you know a garden, uh, putting out a a, uh, a plot of flowers, putting out you know bushes, trees that that flower um, throughout the year. And so. Um, we can help them along um, as we're taking harborage away. Maybe some of that grass that we're using, we can convert that into a flower bed, and that, that would help them. Um, if we have to control other pests, um, termites and other, other things that could in, 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 you know, impact our home, um, things that could be feeding on those plants that we want to maintain, um, use those pesticides wisely. Use those that are use some that are um, uh, lower toxicity to our pollinators, and use them later in the day. Most of our pollinators are out looking for that food early in the morning. Um, by midday, most of that nectar, most of the pollen is is not as available, and so that's a time later in the evening um, that that if they need to control, a homeowner needs to control a a pest on their property. Later in the evening, late afternoon, that would be a time to use those pesticides. Oh, that's so, so smart. So bees are not party animals, Gina. They would not be lined up at last call. They are like, they're going to get a bagel <laughs> at Buffalo and Bergen, call it early. They're not going to be hanging out here. They, they would still be lined up at last call, but last call wouldn't be two o'clock in the morning. It would be two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. They're day drinkers. <laughs> I mean, I, I do. I love that. I was just thinking about our property. We have so much, um, you know, plants and and everything all over the place. I was just thinking like, where do you put, if you have a house and, and you know, you have like an acre of land, two acres of land, three acres of land, whatever. Is it true that you put the bees that far away from your house or do you put them in a plate, in an environment where they're going to thrive? Like if you have a forest edge, just to say, is that the best place to put your hive? In the forest? Yeah. Uh, honeybees, they're going to forage away from the nest. And of course, the closer the food is to the nest, the closer they're going to forage. They're no different than us. You know, we're going we're gonna to go to our refrigerator before we run to the store to get something. So they're going to go close by. Um, so if there's something outside their door, outside the hive, um, of course, they're going to go to that first. But they can forage for miles away. We, we estimate that their foraging range is, is two miles in every direction on a typical day. Wow. So they're covering 12 square miles um, looking for food, looking for nectar, looking for pollen. That's a lot of distance for those little tiny wings. All right. <laughs> yes. Next question, and then we'll make a cocktail. <laughs> I mean, this is a real Q&A today. It's like, Keith. I know. Tell us everything. Um, so you get to, you have your bees. You, you get the, you get, is there, is there a better, um, like a better um, nest? It's not nest. That's not Yeah, the it's a nest. The hive. nest is actually a Yeah. The inside of a hive, correct me if I'm wrong, Keith, is a nest. Right. Yes. But <laughs> what's the better thing to do? The ones with the, um, you know, that you pull them out and they're like the sheets or I saw the new ones now that they're like, they look just like a honey pot and you could just extract it and you don't bother the bees. What do you think is the best to get? The, the best hive to have um, is the one that you're most comfortable with. Oh. As many beekeepers are there out there, there's different ways of keeping bees. Everybody does it a little bit differently. Everybody um, um, has a little tweak on the hive um, that makes it a more enjoyable experience for them. 
what we see out there mostly are the, what we refer to as the Langstroth hives. So most of our hives are either uh, what we refer to as vertical hives, like the Langstroth, where we're mm-hmm. going to be stacking boxes on top of each other, allowing the, the, the nest of the bees to expand as they gather more honey or, or, or increase the number of uh, the brood or the larval uh, offspring, uh, the population of the, of the, of the nest. Um, the other is a is a what we call a horizontal box. Um, there's different ones that we have for those. Long box is where we use um, uh, frames similar to what you were you know talking about before, where you can pull it out, you can look at the comb and so forth, and and put it back in. And so the long box allows you to go horizontally with that. A um, lot less lifting, as you can imagine. If the, if the vertical keeps going higher and higher, um, a a medium box, what we refer to as the typical um, box that we want the bees to put the honey in. Once it's full of honey, that can weigh 30, 35 pounds. Um, a wow. deep box, which is about nine inches deep, that can weigh 60 to 70 pounds. Um, so Holy vertical cow. can get difficult. The horizontal box, the frames that you pick up, um, the frames that go into the deep box, if it's full of honey, that's about seven pounds. Um, and that's pretty much all you're lifting as far as checking it out. So again, what's what's comfortable for you, um, that's what I, I typically recommend. There's different styles, uh, different configurations. And so uh, it's just a matter of researching what's out there. Uh, maybe contacting a couple of beekeepers, finding out if they have a different style box than what's, you know, or, or a style box that you're looking at. Uh, maybe you can um, go out with them and see how they use it, see how it works for you. Hmm. Do you think they would like wallpaper in, the, in their hives? Because I <laughs> wallpapered my chicken coop and my chicken seemed to love it. It's a lovely little peach print. So I want to know, should I continue my wallpapering of the hive or not? Is white the best to have? Uh, traditionally, a honeybee is painted white. Okay. Um, and there's a story that goes behind that. Tell us. Uh, you know, back in the day when we started uh, developing the modern beehive, back in the the mid-1800s, um, white paint was cheap. Yeah. Colored paint was expensive. <laughs> And so beekeepers use the white paint. And it, and it actually turned out well because what that does is uh, it reflects the heat of the, of the hot summers. Um, a, a natural feral nest of bee, honeybees is not going to be out in the middle of the field, expo- you know, being beat down with the sun and so forth. And so it can get very hot um, it being out, in, out on the, in the middle of a field, being exposed to the sun. That, that white color, that, that lighter color helps to reflect the sun, helps to keep the temperature down inside the hive so that they don't get overheated. Natural wood, just staining it or varnishing it, um, you know, that, that works just as well. You just, um, what, what I don't recommend to people is to use a, um, uh, a dark color. Um, pastels work well. Um, bees do see certain colors and it helps them to recognize their hive versus another hive that may be nearby by di- painting it a different color. What colors can they see? Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> Can they see pink? It's my favorite other color. My house is white, green, and now I'll make it pink. Um, they usually they can't. The, the reds are something that they have a hard time um, seeing. Okay. Um, so green. Green is good. Um, like I said, pastels. Um, you know, I've, uh, they they seem to work well. It's a lighter color. Um, you can get different shades of it that that uh, tend to tend oh to work gosh, well for the this bees. Is the great- 
Keith, where have you been all my life? Uh, does, <laughs> does Maryland have a state um, apiarist? Yes. Um, many states, not all states have a state apiarist, uh, but many states, particularly on the East Coast, do. Um, so there's a state apiarist in Maryland and North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, New Jersey, Delaware, Florida, um, all up and down the, the Atlantic coast. Are there bourbon bees in Kentucky? That would be awesome. <laughs> um, I understand there's a bourbon honey. <laughs> yes, yeah. Or should no, I say a bourbon with honey? There you go. Um, I love that. All right, let's make a cocktail using our, our nature's beautiful friend, um, a little bit of honey, right? So one of the easy, one of, one of um, the most traditional cocktails and classic cocktails is the bee's knees, which is traditionally gin, lemon, honey, right? Doesn't get any easier. Today we're gonna do a version of that with bourbon. I love whiskey. I, I heard that you, that you're a whiskey fan where, so we're gonna kind of like do this and uh, make this delicious. So first thing you're gonna do is you're gonna cool off, you're gonna chill your coops with a little bit of ice. And then we're gonna add um, two ounces of whiskey. I'm gonna use Maker's Mark today. Speaking of uh, Kentucky. <laughs> and then we're gonna add um, one ounce of lemon juice and then now this is kind of uh interesting right so we're gonna use the one ounce of lemon juice and we're gonna do fresh squeezed um you can use you know half an ounce three quarters of an ounce of honey syrup and let's talk about that honey is very delicate right so you don't want to put it on the stove and cook it what you want to do is maybe boil some water heat it up and then you're going to make your simple syrup with honey off of the stove you take say a cup of honey cup of your warm hot, warm to hot water and you stir it oh, you really want to keep the temperature low on that because you'll damage the honey and you'll no, you'll no longer get any of the floral notes from the honey so it's oh. a and and you know those bees worked and we just heard those bees worked damn hard for that honey so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna honor that so again depending on how what kind of honey that you have if it's um how it's graded whether it's a really dark amber or it's lighter you know, uh, you might want to adjust your ratio of how much you're going to use in this. I'm going to use um, in my drink um, one ounce just because this is a little bit on the lighter side. And we're going to pour that in. And now we're going to fill with ice and then we're going to shake, strain, and that's it. Super easy, right? Here's a really uh, little fun tip about this. You can make this ahead of time if you're going to have guests at your house and you can have it in a pitcher. There we go. Fantastic. And now we're going to strain. Pretty, pretty, pretty. Um, I'm just expressing a little bit of lemon peel across the top. Don't put it in the drink. You leave it in there. It's going to get too bitter. You don't really want that. Now, for our little pollinator friends, because they're so great and they need flowering um, plants, I stole one of the marigolds out of my garden this morning. And I'm going to show you a little trick. You can split the marigolds. And you don't want to put a whole marigold in your drink. You just split it and you take just oh, a how few. Pretty. You put it across the top and you're going to get a nice bitter flavor and a really cool aromatic that normally you don't get. So there you nice. go. So this is uh, to you, Keith. Cheers. Oh, cheers. Cheers. This is so light and refreshing, Gina. It's easy, it's, right? And, it, and it's... um. For a non-whiskey drinker, which I am, this is just lovely. This is light. Are you a non-whiskey drinker or a novice whiskey drinker? Because I'm I feel like that's where we're at. Well, now. you know, if you 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 know as well as 
our listeners, like you give me an option, it's going to be tequila. <laughs> uh, yeah. But sometimes, you know. No, this is lovely. This is so pretty. All right, Louise. Oh, yeah. This is the bee's knees, mama. Well, the bee's knees with the gin. Let's, let's give a little homage to my history, yes. too. <laughs> so where are they going to go to get this recipe, Gina? They're going to go to Designated Drinker Not Show for this recipe and other how-tos and how to find Keith and maybe... Maybe we can do a link to some of the states that do have um, their own. I can't even say. I'm going to say Avery's. It's okay. It's oh, they're, they're for me. Key, each state's keep. <laughs> I know. What, what, what state? Yeah, exactly. Each state's uh, each state's keep. That's a hard thing to say. There you go. Um, again, go to designated drinker dot show. There you go. So I think um, I think we're we're at that point. All I right. do think we're at that point. All right, Keith. This is my last question. It's my favorite question. It's how we know if you listen to the show or not. So in this day and age, if you can identify yourself as uh, people identify themselves as all kinds of mythical um, creatures or they, you know, put themselves together and they think that they um, can identify themselves as, and you may, as a German honeybee because you make amazing Riesling and that's like your thing, right? (laughs) If you can identify yourself as one um, ingredient, what would that be and why? Well, uh, of course it's going to be honey. (laughs) <laughs> that was a shah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've been um, uh, identified uh, for so long uh, with honeybees and beekeeping. So, yeah, I, I'd, I'd have to go along with the. If I identify with one ingredient, it would have to be honey. Well, I love that. There you go. That was easy sweet, peasy. Sweet and complex, right? There, there you, you go. go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I'm excited. I know. Now you know. got all this bee knowledge. I know. You have to like offline it and start with the beekeeping. Well, good thing is you'll have this recording and go back and hear all of Keith's advice over uh, and over again. I mean, obviously there'll be a typewriter by my beehive just because <laughs> it would be so like wax poetic, right? Oh, <laughs> terrible. On that bad dad joke, let's wrap the show. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, Keith. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.